You might trace my involvement way back to the year 1947. The CIA was a new agency full of piss and vinegar. It was formed, you'll recall, in the wake of the worst intelligence catastrophe in US history, the penetration of the Manhattan Project by Soviet agents. But the Soviets could, with relative ease, break into the most secret projects of all, was in everyone's mind. Counterintelligence on domestic soil was supposed to be the province of the FBI, but we considered them a bunch of clowns, chasing parlour pinks and harmless socialists under the command of a megalomaniac fraud. Putting J. Edgar Hoover up against Laurenti Beria and his men, it was preposterous. And of course we feared even worse penetrations. What if they had a mole in the heart of our political process itself? Such a person in public office could do far worse damage than a mere cipher clerk or some such, the sort of people the FBI seemed competent to tackle. So we set up an informal study group <clears throat> to discuss the issue. I was a member and my task was to design a program for the elimination by extreme measures of a prominent American politician known to be in the service of the Soviets. <clears throat> assassination to be blunt. I therefore studied assassinations with great vigour and came to the conclusion that in the domestic context there are only three major approaches. One, the feigned accident. Two, sacrificial attentat at close range. And three, the attack at long range with the assassin escaping. There are problems with all of these. As I'm sure you know, with recent advances in forensic techniques, it is nearly impossible to successfully feign an accident, especially if the victim is important enough to warrant an exhaustive inv investigation. And the FBI, despite their shortcomings in other areas, are superb in this narrow field. For the sacrificial attack, one needs a madman. Madmen are easy to come by, but difficult to point at the desired target. We tried some experiments. They were unsuccessful, both with natural and induced mania. The third method has many advantages, <clears throat> both in terms of control and as a way of sending a message to our adversaries that we are onto their plot. But it shares the disadvantage of the first method. It is hard to get away with it. As I pondered this problem, it occurred to me that a melding, so to speak, of the second two methods might offer a solution. That is, if one committed the actual assassination with a trained professional and was afterward able to blame it on a madman, one might have the best of both. The work would be efficiently done and the hue and cry and the sub subsequent investigation will be truncated by the existence of a plausible dupe. I wrote a paper on this which was quite well received. That was the origin of PXK. It was quite irregular and so secret that it did not bear a standard code name. As far as the CIA proper is concerned, no such project ever existed. To understand the next phase, you have to know that every intelligence agency is played by volunteers individuals who wish to become spies. <clears throat> Virtually all of them are useless for real intelligence work, 
unstable, maniacal, lazy or criminal types for the most part, but some of them can be used as pigeons, that is as false members of the spy network who can distract the attention of counterintelligence operatives and can be betrayed to them with misleading or damaging information in their heads. Lists are kept of such potential pigeons at foreign CIA stations. I began to keep such a list of American citizens for PXK. Oswald, said Clark. Indeed, Oswald was precisely the type, but of course I was long gone from the CIA by the time Oswald entered his purview. During his time as a Marine in Japan in 1958. Nevertheless, PSK was still alive, lists were still maintained, and a Marine spouting Marxist propaganda at a top secret radar base could not have escaped the attention of those who maintained them. Bureaucracy, even invisible bureaucracy, has considerable inertia. The man you know as Morris Bishop. <clears throat> found Oswald's name and looked him up in Texas in 1962 and cultivated him using some of our old assets in the white Russian community. Okay, we know you knew Bishop from way back. How did he suddenly surface with reference to Oswald and PXK? Oh, Bishop was quite ready to kill Kennedy from the moment the Bay of Pigs invasion was betrayed. He simply didn't know how to carry it off. He came to me and I told him about the PSK plan and how to find out who was on the current list. There are several potential candidates, but Oswald was by far the best. The infantile Marxism, the megalomania, the propensity for violence, the Soviet defection, even the family linked to organised crime. He was perfect. The final joy was when Bishop met Oswald and realised that the man bore a close resemblance to William Caballo. It was obvious that we had the germ of a perfect PSK operation. The next step was to get Oswald deep into the Cuban exile orbit. He was told that he was being prepared to assassinate Fidel Castro. Then we switched him to Kennedy. In fact, he did not care at all whom he was going to shoot. He was in it for the thrill. At last, he was being taken seriously by important people and embarking on large undertakings. He was told, of course, to maintain his leftist connections, which he did to the extent he was capable of performing any assigned task. The story Bishop gave him was that as a good leftist, it would be easy for him to get close to Castro, so even the most incompetent communist counterintelligence apparatus would have taken more than three minutes to see through him. And the Cubans, as Paul Bishop learned, are far from incompetent. Bishop assembled the other members of the team and gave them the operational names by which you know them. A romantic, Bishop liked so many of the people who entered the CIA just after the war. Of course, PSK gave him the chess theme. Pawn takes king. So I suppose I'm responsible for that bit of fun. The assassination was planned and the necessary arrangements were made, and then everything fell apart. A complete failure. What? I mean, of course, the first attempt. In Miami, 1961. Oswald had wandered off somewhere and missed the pickup. Bishop was in a rear state. He wanted to scratch Oswald and start afresh with somebody else, but I dissuaded him. 
I recall telling him that we would never again find somebody with so many of the characteristics we wanted in a lone, deranged assassin. Except the ability to fire a rifle accurately, of course, which we uh, did not in this case require. I suggested Dallas as the next venue. This was in June of 63, just after the Dallas speech was scheduled. But Oswald only got his job in the book depository in October. That's right. The book depository wasn't part of the original plan. We were exploring ways to work the thing at the airport or the trademark where he was giving the speech. I had the group up here for a couple of weeks in late August, early September to work out alternate plans. It was quite professional with little models of the various buildings and escape routes. Oswald was very impressed. He stayed on for some special training we called it, in which drinking and willing ladies figured prominently. During that period, Caballo went to Mexico City. We cut Oswald loose on October the 3rd and he went back to Dallas. He wanted money which we refused to give him. He had to fit into his background, we said. He had to get a regular job. He didn't like that much, but we knew that with serious money in his pocket, he might decide to do anything, go to China or Australia or God knows what. As I said, an extremely unstable young man. During the next month, of course, Caballo was also in Dallas, being Oswald, shooting his rifle, for example, buying ammunition for it, making himself memorable, as he had on the bus trip and at the communist embassies in Mexico. Oswald gave his rifle to Caballo? Of course not. A clarification. Caballo and Oswald had no contact. Bishop kept them strictly apart at the guerrilla operations and during training. It was Term and Bishop who acted as intermediaries throughout all of this. Term got the rifle. He admired the weapon and said he wanted to have it checked out by a gunsmith. Oswald was ridiculously proud of that piece of junk. It also gave us the premise for the real assassination weapons. Real? Yes. Caballo procured four mint M1938 Menlika Kakano rifles from the same series as Oswald's own. He cut the barrels down, tuned them up neat, neatly to nearly to match standards, and fitted them with folding stocks and high quality optics. The finished weapons were works of art. A little over 20 inches long and concealable under a jacket when they were folded. But the ballistics still wouldn't match Oswald's rifle. Blaine seemed to realise this and gave him a long humorous stare. No, but they'd be close, perhaps close enough for government work as the saying goes. And of course the ammunition was exactly the same as Oswald's. In any case, while this was going on, Oswald got the job in the book depository in mid-October, I think, and shortly after that, the White House added plans for a motorcade to the trip. Bishop, through his sources, was able to get preliminary plans for the route, and when we saw where they intended to go, everything fell into place. The other plans were immediately abandoned, and we settled on a shooting from the book depository. Perhaps that was foolish but I balanced the possibility of something going amiss in a more spontaneous plan against the overwhelming advantage of having the shooting done from Oswald's place of work. <clears throat> in the morning, Oswald dutifully brought his silly rifle in his homemade paper sack, 
The plan called for him to shoot from the second floor window from which he had an easier escape route. Just after he arrived, however, Carrera walked in and told him that the plan had been cancelled, that the FBI had become suspicious of him and that he was to hide his rifle on the sixth floor behind some cartons, lie low and await orders. He bought that? Oh yes. He was already nervous from his earlier contretemps with Agent Hostie. It was plausible. Not to mention that he was basically a paranoid maniac to begin with, added Marlene. How true, said Blaine. In any case, he did it as he was told. Carrera stayed on the second floor and went to the window. Nobody noticed him. Another Latino man in work clothes in a book warehouse. This is not the Federal Reserve, Mr. Carp. People were coming in and out of deliveries all the time. Caballo came in about 11 and went to the sixth floor. He talked to no one, yet several of Oswald's co-workers saw him and accepted him as Oswald. He removed Oswald's rifle from its bag and arranged the bag and rifle artistically in the places where they were to be found by the police. He placed three spent cartridges from Oswald's rifle, brass that he secured at the firing range on the floor. Why three? asked Carp. Blaine shrugged. I have no idea. He was improvising by then. Perhaps he and Carrera agreed that they would only need three shots. Now to the event. The motorcade arrived and made the turn onto Elm Street. Carrera fired first, striking Kennedy in the upper back. Kennedy moved in reaction to that shot, and that threw Caballo's aim off, and he hit Governor Connolly instead. A few seconds after that, he fired again and hit Kennedy in the back of the head. Carrera folded his weapon, stuck it under his jacket, and walked out the back. He went one street over where Gill was waiting for him in a station wagon. Caballo picked up his own spent cases and walked down the stairs and out the back too with a weapon under his jacket. Unfortunately, he was seen doing it, which made for some confusion afterward, since Oswald was at that time having his famous coke in the second floor lunchroom. Of course, as soon as Oswald learned that the president, not Castro, had really been shot, he realised that something was desperately wrong. He simply left and went home without even trying to take his rifle. Naturally, Bishop, who had excellent connections with the Dallas police force, was able to leak Oswald's description and address to them. Unfortunately, they dispatched Officer Tippett. Why unfortunately? I mean, unfortunately for Tippett. Tippett and Oswald knew each other. They were rather birds of a feather. In fact, tough-talking real men with guns. They used to meet at Jack Ruby's place. Oswald had armed himself and was wandering aimlessly. He now must have understood that all his delusions had come to nothing. He was simply being set up as a fall guy for the assassination. When Tippett approached him, Oswald panicked and killed him. So Tippett wasn't sent to assassinate Oswald? Not by us at any rate. No, we had Ruby set up to do that from the beginning. I thought an assassin, assassin, so to speak, with organised crime connections was a nice touch. The last little item was that Term went up to Parkland and dropped the magic bullet on a stretcher line in the hallway. That was, of course, one of the errors. He should have used a banged-up slug. He had plenty from his target practice with Oswald's rifle.
The other error was the shot from the second floor. A proper autopsy would have recognised that this shot was angled upward and could not possibly have come from the sixth floor. What about the autopsy? Did you fiddle with that too? No, in fact we simply trusted to the incompetence and confusion of the federal government, a never failing friend. The Secret Service, the FBI and of course our own CIA had all been very derelict which helped prove my theory. Once a plausible patsy was presented to them, moreover, one who had all the kaleidoscopic qualities of Lee Harvey Oswald, every responsible party would join in the effort to enhance evidence pointing to Oswald and suppress any which did not or which pointed back at the agency in question. So it proved, as you should know, it is proven so yet. Ruby, of course, did his part the following day. The group had scattered. The Dallas police and the FBI combined to make a botch of the evidence. The seed was planted for a thousand conspiracies, of which our little impromptu would appear as just one. I must say, however, that you came as close as anyone to ferreting us out. Bishop was quite beside himself. What about the grassy knoll shot? Who did that? That? If there ever was such a shot, I'm as much in the dark about it as you. Have you ever seen a bullfight? No. Well, on occasion, people in the stands become so overwhelmed by the event that they leap out into the arena and try to work the bull themselves. They call them espontaneos. That's what the grassy knoll shot was, I believe. And Espontaneo, one of the many citizens of Dallas who wanted Kennedy dead. Perhaps it was another conspiracy. We certainly didn't have any fake secret servicemen about. Or perhaps it was an actual lone nut. Ironic when you come to think of it. All that trouble, my precious PXK operation, the clever plans, and all we had to do was sit back and watch some idiot birches with a deer rifle do the job. In fact, if I was still hell, I could take you on a round of bars and barbecue joints in South Dallas and find half a dozen men who'd confess to being the trigger man on the grassy knoll. It's a wonder that anyone in Dealey Plaza survived the day. So um, this is uh, the book's called Corruption of Blood. And uh, the author is uh, Robert K. Tannenbaum, who was the deputy chief counsel to the Congressional Committee investigation into the assassinations of President John F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King. He has also served as the New York City Assistant District Attorney, Homicide Bureau Chief and Mayor of Beverly Hills. He's the author of two true crime books. So the um, breakdown at the back of the book says, Best-selling author Robert K. Tannenbaum brings his real-life experience as chief investigator of the Kennedy assassination to this breakneck novel of corruption and conspiracy.